we're going to be this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, forging ahead in our study of this letter that Paul wrote to a church that he had founded, uh, probably only founded a few years before he wrote this letter. It was already full of problems. And one of the ways he knew it was full of problems is that they'd written him a letter. We don't have that letter, but he talks about it. He refers to it a few times in his letter back to them. What he's doing now, especially at this section of 1 Corinthians, is he's responding point by point to the questions they asked him or the issues they raised in their letter to him. I kind of imagine it like, like an email. I mean, I don't really do this anymore, but for a while it was popular in emails to, to respond into the body of the email. Does anybody ever do that still? Drew Raines is the only person, and Will Harvey are the only two people that I think still do that. Oh, uh, Catherine, so we've got a few people who still do that, but most people don't do that anymore. Anyway, you used to do that. Like it would, the, what, what your email would bring, bring up when you clicked reply was the response, and then you would sort of tab down and, and enter your response based, does this make sense? Are you guys following me? Okay. I'm just going to let that go. That's kind of what I think Paul's doing here. He's kind, of, he's kind of typing into their letter. One by one, he's going after the issues that they had raised. And this one that, he's, that he comes to in chapter 8 is going to take him through the next three full chapters. It was a big issue. It's the issue of what to do about meat that had been sacrificed to idols. Can you buy it? Can you eat it? Can you eat it at home? Can you eat it at a temple? Lots of thorny issues. So I feel like the first thing I've got to do this morning is explain to you what this was all about because we're going to be there for the next several weeks. Paul addressing this issue bit by bit from a few different angles. So here's why it was such a big deal. I think, it was, I think Paul is mainly concerned with the fact that they were wondering about eating, eating meat sacrificed to idols at the temple itself. Um, the temple rituals of that day, particularly in a city like Corinth, were thoroughly interwoven with the social life of that city, and eating, eating together was at the heart of it. Um, it was common to sacrifice an animal to a deity at the temple and then divide the meat up, and some of it might go to sort of pay off the temple workers, the priests or whatever. Some of it might be sold in a meat market that was attached to the temple. Some of it would be cooked and eaten together by people who were at the temple on the spot. Um, commentators that I've read describe the temples as, as basically the closest thing in the ancient world to a restaurant. Uh, one of them even mentioned that, that temples would often have these really large rooms that you could rent out, kind of like a wedding reception venue or something. Uh, these big rooms where you could go have your office Christmas party, I guess, um, and rent it out and, and have food that was prepared uh, from the, the meat that had been sacrificed. It was like an event venue. I think maybe the closest thing to, to our experience is that it was something like maybe a sports bar or a mall food court. Or you come for a variety of reasons, right? When you eat at a mall food court, there's, there's social reasons for doing that. There are sort of quasi-religious reasons for being there. Um, and there are culinary reasons. So the question is whether Christians could participate selectively. Can you go and eat at the temple and only be doing this one thing when it really involves this whole wide complex of things? Can you go to the mall and eat at Chick-fil-A without participating in the full-orbed mall culture, right? And the commerce and everything else that it, that it involves. And they would have had strong reasons for wanting this to be possible, for wanting to be able to go to the temple, eat a meal, and not be sort of tied up in everything else that's going on in the temple. They would have had strong reasons to want that to be possible because, as we know, I mean, this church was obsessed with status. Corinth was this city where people, uh, it, it wasn't really stratified between the haves and the have-nots, it was a pretty new city. There was a lot of new money to be had. So there were people climbing social ladders. 
And these, these guys were obsessed with that. And they were even using their Christianity as a way to get ahead. And they certainly would have wanted the status that could come from hanging out in the temple with the powers that be. Avoiding temple rituals could have had major status implications for them. It could have made them look ridiculous and weird and antisocial. Not to mention they would lose out on opportunities for networking. This is the kind of stuff that was going on at the temple. Plus, maybe the food was really good. I don't know. Who knows? They really wanted to go. And it seems like they were for their right to eat at the temple. Um, And that they were using maybe some of the theological truths that Paul had taught them to justify it. They were sort of getting, coming up with these creative readings of things that he had taught them when he was there, founding the church. And they, they're writing now to Paul to justify it. And Paul's response comes down really hard, really fast. Now, it's a, it's a response that unfolds bit by bit. Um, it doesn't come all at once. It doesn't come all in chapter 8. Um, like I said before, he's going to be talking about this issue from chapter 8 all the way through the end of chapter 10. And what he starts with, what he, eventually he's going to go on to say, it's a bad idea for you, for your own sake, to eat in a temple. He's going to make this very interesting, even bizarre-like argument about fellowshipping with demons that we're going to unpack in a couple of weeks. That means I've got two weeks to figure out what I think that means. But for today, he keeps it simple. Today, he's going to start, with, he's going to soften them up a little bit. And he's going to talk about the implications of eating food in the temple what the implications of doing that are for those that you love or should love. Not what it does to you, but what it might do to those who are watching you, who are maybe following you, maybe modeling their Christian life on yours. What he's going to argue is that if you are who you claim to be, if you have experienced God's love in the way that you've claimed to, then what's going to guide your behavior? Here's the the main principle to come out of this today. What's going to guide your behavior, what should guide all Christian behavior, is not what you know to be right, but what love demands of you. Not your knowledge, but your love for others. That's where we're headed this morning. We as Christians are defined not by what we know, but by who we're known by, our loving God, and by what we're known for, which is our love for each other. That's where we're headed. Now, please stand with me, if you will. In honor of God's word, I'm going to read for us the entire chapter, chapter 8. This is verses 1 to 13. This is the word of the Lord to us. Now, concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, He is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, Not all possess this knowledge, but some, through their former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat. We are no better off if we do eat. 
But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it's weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. As Christians, we're defined first, not by what we know, but by who we're known by. That's the first point Paul makes in the first three verses of our text. Basically, the way this passage works is you've got a principle that Paul lays down in verses 1 to 3. And then he applies that principle to their situation in verses 4 to 13. He tells them, he interacts with what they're saying, what they think they know in verses 1 to 3. And then he says, okay, if this is true, then here's how you should approach whether or not to eat meat in a temple. Verses 4 to 13. And where he goes in the first three verses is not where I would have expected, probably not where many people would have expected. What he's using is something that's been called a yes-but argument. He's conceding something they believe in is true, but he's trying to show them that they missed the point. Yeah, you're right to an extent, but you're not getting it yet. And the key word here and throughout this passage is the word knowledge. Probably what what was going on here is that the people that he's writing to thought they had some sort of special elite insider knowledge. Maybe this is behind what what they thought it meant to be spiritual, to have this special spiritual status. Um, that they know something others don't know. And Paul's writing to tell them, yeah, you do have some sort of knowledge, but you've got to think about your knowledge differently. You've got to think about yourselves differently. Paul is not, now let me, make, let me make this clear right up front. Paul is not here down on knowledge, right? He's not being anti-intellectual, like you shouldn't try to learn new things. You shouldn't try to grow as, in your understanding of God. Paul, of all people in the New Testament, was thoroughly, robustly, extensively theological. Most of his letters are just full of this really complicated material that it takes us you know, a lifetime to try to unpack. He's all for learning and knowledge. What he's trying to say here is that knowledge can be dangerous. Knowledge of the things of God, the knowledge they're talking about and putting to use, it could take you into a deeper love of God, but in their case, it's taken them in a very different direction. What their knowledge has done, their primary response to what they know is self-centered. Their knowledge is about them, not about God. Paul says, knowledge puffs up. It's inflated their sense of self-importance. They've used it as a badge of honor. They've used it as a reason to get to live life the way they want to. So their knowledge has not directed them towards God and truth about him or directed them towards others and, and, and helped them want to live their lives in service. Their knowledge has been about them, about their status, about their rights. And this kind of knowledge, Paul claims, is not knowledge at all. They've missed the point. Or in his words, if anyone thinks they know, they do not yet know as they ought to know. You know, but you're not getting it. I think another way of saying it is that their knowledge about God fell short of knowledge 
of God. They knew some truths about Him, but they hadn't connected to Him as a person, as a Lord, a Savior, a Master. So their knowledge of God had fallen short of its purpose because to know Him, to receive truth about Him in the way it's supposed to be received is to be humbled, is to be brought low, is to be amazed at how His love raises us up. That's what I think Paul's getting at in verse 3. Now in verse 3, I don't think it's what you would expect. Verse 3 says, if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Now I don't know about you, but if I'm reading verse 2, it says, if anyone thinks he knows something he doesn't yet know as he ought to know. Then in verse 3, it's kind of a parallel to it. I'm expecting, but if anyone loves, he knows as he ought to know. But he doesn't say that. He takes the focus off of them and who they are and puts it onto God. He says, if anyone loves God, then they are known by God. Because true knowledge, the knowledge that, that is deep, that penetrates into who you are and changes you, is first and foremost not a knowledge about God, but your being known by God. When he says known by God, he's using a phrase that's common in Scripture. And it's not just head knowledge. It's about a selecting, deep, in, uh, personal and intimate knowledge. It's a saving knowledge. It's, what, it's the way he talks about God's knowledge of Israel. God looks out, knows all things, sees all the nations of the earth, but he knows Israel. It's used in Exodus. It's used through the prophets in this way. Jesus takes up this same language in his teaching about, about what it is to, to, for him to be a good shepherd. In John chapter 10, one of the things that he says is that I know my sheep. It's a, it's a deep and intimate, selective personal knowledge, a saving knowledge. It's the, it's the knowledge that a child has of their parents' face in a busy crowd, right? You ever seen a child playing at a, at a busy public park or Chuck E. Cheese or something like that? It was just chaos. And they're playing on their own for a while, you know, and they're good. Maybe they're, you know, they're, they've reached the developmental stage where they're a little bit independent. But there comes a time when they need to know where their parents are and they start searching the room. And it's all just faces. And they know these faces in a sense. They see them. They recognize, they understand what, what's involved with a face. But they land on their mama's face and they know it. They know it. Those who love God are those who have been known by God first. Knowledge about God, truth about Him, when it's viewed in light of knowledge, of our knowledge by God in this saving way, What it inspires is not pride. Look at all this that I know. If only you knew and could live like I do. It doesn't inspire pride. To be known by God inspires awe. Inspires love. When our response is pride and self-centeredness, what we're showing is that we've missed the point. We've missed the point. I think it goes back to what Paul was saying earlier in this letter. Chapter 3 talked about the Spirit and how the things of God, the gospel, the promises of God... They're foolish to the natural man. But to those who are spiritual, they're, they're life-giving. What we talked about in that passage is that, is that the Spirit's role in us is to help us come alive internally to the things that He's promised us in His Word. It's one thing to read about Jesus and His death and His resurrection. There are a lot of people all over the world who have great head knowledge about that. They understand how the theory works, but it does nothing for them. They don't love it, Right? But what the Spirit does is it takes these truths and it awakens them. It brings them to life in us and it it brings our hearts to love them and latch on to them. The analogy we use, I I just ripped this one off from 
300 years ago from Jonathan Edwards is the difference between knowing that honey is sweet because somebody told you that it was, because you trust their testimony, because you have an idea of what the word sweet means, and knowing that honey is sweet because you put honey into your mouth and you taste it. What the Corinthians are showing, because their knowledge about God has driven them to pride and condescension and self-centeredness, is that they've never tasted their knowledge by God, what God has done for them. So first, right here out of the gate, Paul is trying to help them rethink what they think about knowledge. It's not about them. It's about God's knowledge of them. And if they connect with this side, with God's knowledge of them, it changes how they interact with each other. That's the main point of the text. That's where he goes in verse 4. What we're known by as Christians, what we're defined by, is not what we know, but what we're known for, and that is our love for each other. And that's Paul's main point. So verses 1 to 3, principle here. It's not about what you know, it's about what you know and who you're known by. It's not just head knowledge. It is connecting with it so that your heart is driven by it. And now he's going to apply that to their issue. Their issue is, what do we do about eating food sacrificed to idols at the temple? Can we go to the restaurant or not? And Paul's going to show them that if they're really driven not by what they know and what they want to get out of life, but driven by love for others, then they will not eat this meat at the temple. That's the short answer. It starts in verse 4. If verses 1 to 3 are this sort of, yes, you're right, but principle, verses, verses 4 through 6 are the yes part. He's applying it to their issue. And verses 7 to 13 are the but part. So yes, in verse 4, Paul says, you're right. It's true that idols are not what people believe they are. They're pieces of wood, or they're stone, or they just basically have no existence. They're not real powers. Paul believes there's spiritual powers at work in the universe. He talks about demons, for example. But the idols themselves, they're just material that are made up by humans. So he's he's agreeing with them so far. Sure, there are many so-called gods. Even in one sense, there are many gods and lords out there that are competing with God, but this is not a fair fight. There is only one God who created everything, and it wasn't these spiritual forces. There is only one Lord through whom we exist and through whom we have life, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not a Star Wars kind of dualism here where you've got good and evil, and there's really it's up in the air about which side is going to win, the, the, the dark side or the, the what's the other side, the, the good side of the force. I don't know. It's not that kind of system. There is one God. And so far, he's in agreement with them. This is basic Christian truth. It even, honestly, even reads like maybe it was a, a creed of some sort at that time. It's very carefully worked out. Maybe it was just this common confession that Christians had about what they believe about God. But, here's the but side, verse 7. This is where the real contrast comes in. But, they are still not getting it. They're taking what they know about God, that he's the only one, that the idols aren't real, And they're applying it in a self-centered way. They are all about their rights. They are not thinking about others. So in verse 7, Paul, Paul draws their attention to some who might not be quite so confident in this knowledge as they are. See, he knows that this idea about who God is is radical at this time in this place. You don't just shake off everything you ever thought about what the gods were like overnight. And so there are some people, new in their faith, weaker 
in their conscience, their ability to tell what's right from what's wrong, who still had a lot of the old ways in them. They still loved something about their old worship. They still maybe had fear for these old gods. And Paul says in verse 9, if they, verse 9 he says, don't take this right of yours and use it as a stumbling block for someone who might not be there yet. In verse 10 he says, if they were to see you eating this food, sacrificed idols in the temple, would they not then be encouraged with their weak sense of what's right and wrong to eat the food as if it really was sacrificed to a god and therefore eat it as an act of worship? See, I don't think what he's saying here, based on that verse, I don't think what he's saying here is what he says in some other letters, like that, that you don't want to offend someone's conscience, that maybe they still think it's wrong to do this thing and, and you don't want to do it, even though you know it's not wrong, you don't want to do it because you don't want to make them do it and then sin against their own conscience. He does make that argument in another place. Here, that's not really so much what he's concerned with. Here, he's concerned about these people being led back into idol worship. He's worried that if they see you worshiping in a temple, eating in a temple, they'll think you're worshiping. And they'll think that it's okay for Christians to worship other gods. And then they're going to follow you, but not as those who have knowledge. They're going to follow you as those who are now worshiping idols. And that's why he says, this guy could be destroyed by your desire to have a good meat meal. He points them to Jesus, ultimately. Verses, verses 11 and 12. He's like, look, Jesus, Jesus gave up his life. He died so that this man could have life. And you won't even give up your right to eat meat? You won't even go without meat? Paul's warning them of using their knowledge to protect their rights and advance their interests and in the process trample down their brothers and sisters in Christ. In that sense, what they're doing is an offense against Jesus. Basically, they're using their knowledge to live their life on their terms. Verse 8 is the key. It's in the middle of this section. Yes, it's true that food will not commend us to God. That's probably what they've written in the letter. They're like, isn't it true? God doesn't really care about what we eat, so why don't we just eat what we want? Paul says, yeah, that's true. But he flips it on them at the end of that verse. We are no worse off if we do not eat. See, if he was trying to encourage them that it was okay for them to eat, he would have said, you're no worse off if you do eat. Don't worry about it. It's not wrong. That's kind of what he says in his letter to the Romans. But here he's like, you're not missing out on anything if you don't eat. You have everything you need in Jesus. So why can't you do without it? You're no worse off if you don't eat. You are no better off. God doesn't love you anymore. If you do, take your knowledge, your rights, and go eat at the temple. So since eating meat doesn't matter to God, your freedom means you get to do what you think is best for someone else. See, they thought, because God doesn't care, we're free to do whatever we want. And their criteria for their behavior is their knowledge, their knowledge that God doesn't care about food. And it's turned them loose to go live the life they feel like they want to live, to control their life on their terms. But that's not what it looks like to know something as a Christian. What it looks like to know something as a Christian, to know that God doesn't care, is, well, now I'm free to do what's going to be best for those that I love. Now, the payoff here, for those of us who don't have temples in the, in the traditional sense or food sacrifice to idols, is clear, I think. And it's essential to living as Christians in the world. We are not off the hook here 
just because we may have avoided leading somebody back into idol worship, right? I mean, none of us are likely to have been guilty of that or likely to be guilty of that in the sense Paul was talking about. So finding a way, doing, this, doing what we always do when we come to the Scriptures, try to bridge the gap between their time, that culture, their ideas, and ours, is really hard here because we just don't have an exact uh, parallel to what they were experiencing. So, he, so here's how I want to do it. What I want to make sure we, we leave with is that we understand the principle for Christian behavior, what guides us, the criteria based on, we, based on which we live our lives in the world is not what we know to be right. It's not what's okay for us to do. It's what love demands of us. What guides us is our desire to be for the good of those in our lives. So what guides your behavior? What are you aiming for? Are you the kind of person who knows what's right? Who can't accept anything less? Sometimes Christian behavior is defined by setting aside what we want, maybe even what's best for us. And in a sense, what's our right? Because our main goal is to build up somebody else. I'm going to brag on my wife for a minute. I think she's a great example of this. She's a great example of this in a lot, in a lot of ways, but there's one in particular that I thought fits really well. So Lindsay is involved in this, um, at one, our church's outreach, to uh, Muslim women living in Nashville. And one of the ways that we do outreach with Muslim women in Nashville is we pair up uh, moms with, with um, refugee moms who have kids that are around the same age, and you go and you hang out at their house, and you play, your kids play, and you talk, and it's really fun. Well, <clears throat> the first time Lindsay took Walter over to play... Um, what you need to know is that these are, these are Middle Eastern women who are all about hospitality, right? It is a hospitality culture. And in that sense, how they show hospitality is crucial. How you receive their hospitality is also crucial to establishing a friendship and showing love. So she goes over there for their first time, and this precious lady brings out the silver. I mean, the silver loaded down with the best that the American supermarket has to offer, which is to say Cheetos and Little Debbie cakes and soda, like Coke, in fancy glasses. And she spreads it out, and our little two-year-old was all over it. I mean, he just goes for it. And this happens weekly, right? She'll turn her back and turn back around and Walter's just like shoving in the Cheetos as fast as he possibly can. And there's a sense in which as parents, we don't, we've chosen not to feed our child that kind of food on a regular basis. All right? I'll just put it that way. Not a superiority thing, I hope, but we've chosen not to, not to make that a staple of his diet. Some of that is self-interested because we don't like what happens to him when he's got a bunch of little Debbie cakes in him. Right? Some of it is concern for his body. But let's be honest, having him stuff his face with the best that the American supermarket has to offer once a week is not going to lead to diabetes, I don't think, just that once a week time. I don't, I'm not a doctor here. <laughs> but the, the long-term damage is not significant. So we don't, as parents, don't have a responsibility, I think, to protect our child from exposure to Cheetos once a week or so. <laughs> but we do think it would be better if he didn't have them, right? 
what's best here. What our knowledge tells us is that it would be better if he wasn't binging every week on snack food. But in this case, what it, we, our knowledge could take us in a couple different directions. Our knowledge that we don't feed our kid like that could puff us up, right? Pity those who feed their children such things. Or we could do what Lindsay has done faithfully for almost two years now. We could just set aside that right. And we can, we can love this person whose soul we care for, who has become an important friend in our lives, and who, by letting our child receive her hospitality, knows that we love her, that we're for her, and engages us differently because of that. I think we could use many, many examples of this, of how this could play out for us. Every one of you who are married, for example, know what it is to have a different sense from your spouse of what's best. <laughs> right? And I'm not talking about the big things. I'm talking about the little things. In our house, one of them is of what should the thermostat be set on. Because I'm the tightwad, and Lindsay enjoys the comforts of, that are provided to us in this Western society that we live in. Um, I don't know what your issues are, but all of us have them. And in some sense, you in your marriage may be right. It may be better to do it your way. Right? Um, but what, at what cost to your marriage, to your relationship with this person that you love? Sometimes if, if our behavior is guided not by what we know to be right or know to be best, then the loving thing to do is to just yield. To yield not resentfully, not vindictively, but willingly. Because Christ set aside his rights for us. And though being in the form of God, he emptied himself and became like us. And he was obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he alone is Lord. And because he is Lord, we are set free from that pressure and we are called to emptying ourselves like he did and finding ourselves again in his lordship over us. Because that is where true rest is to be found. And that is where we find the freedom to love each other in a way that makes him known, not us. Father, we want to love each other well like this. And there is nothing less natural to us than setting aside our rights. And so we pray that your spirit would give us the power that we don't have on our own. We know that means you get the glory for it. We're okay with that. That's what we want. We are tired of trying to change ourselves. And so we ask for your spirit to conquer our hearts so that we love like you loved, that we love what you loved, that we live from your saving knowledge of us and not from what we know and think to be best for ourselves. Help us to love each other in a way that proclaims who you are and what you've done so that everyone who's looking at us will see in our community something that's just not natural, something that doesn't make sense. We pray that they will be drawn in by it. We want to see your name made glorious in our community and through our love. So change us, Father, for your name's sake. We pray. Amen.